I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hi, Lynx. Hey, Chanti. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm sitting here. I have like the most professional setup I've had in a really long time. Yeah, this is going to be interesting because it's our first full episode in self-isolation. So, oh, yeah. Not in the same room. Yeah, it is a very different experience. And um, yeah, we had a couple already saved up from our trip from L.A. And we had some nice interviews. And yeah, now... Uh, I guess it's something you can't ignore. How's your uh, self-isolation going? Oh, it's fine. I've been really busy working. It's I guess it was a good time to be an online teacher. So I've been busy doing that and working on an online class. And we've been updating the website. So if you haven't checked out MusesPod, dot uh, com in a while head over to it and see all the new stuff we've added yeah we got blog posts going now we have some fun articles up we have uh, a thing about movies with that feature groupies shanti did a great top five books written by rock star wives so if you're looking for anything to read right now anything to watch we got you covered and we got a whole bunch of fun new stuff coming up and look forward to everyone seeing our little 20 questions because we have some amazing women that we've previously interviewed they're uh writing out their answers right now and um i think people are going to love it so yeah keep keep an eye out on the website yeah. And since I'm sitting so much lately and doing so much work at the computer, I was looking online for a proper computer chair because I've just been sitting at kitchen table chairs and they've been really hurting my back. So uh, TJ actually went and got me um, a more comfortable chair. So I'm sitting in a nice comfortable chair. I've got my notes in front of me and everything's hands-free. So that's I'm amazing. talking with expression. My hands are up in the air right now because I'm hands-free. I'm just going to close my eyes during this and like picture you in front of me okay. in your new chair and uh, telling us this story. I'm excited for this one because... I haven't told a story in a while. Wow. Like we've done interviews and stuff. So this is a book. I read a book and it's called The Next Elvis, Searching for Stardom at Sun Records by Barbara Barnes Sims. Yes. Uh, a trip back to Sun Records. This is fun. <gasps> right? It, yeah. Yeah. The way she was describing the studio and everything and the street and Memphis itself, it really brought me back to our time that we spent there and just made me feel giddy again with how much of a 
backstage pass we got into yeah. Sun Records. Yeah. And so do you want to tell them where we actually got this book? It was a gift given to us by Daniel and Plez, the two amazing gentlemen that we met at Sun Records or Sun Studio. And um, yeah, they know how much we love talking about women in music. And they right away were like, oh, you got to read this book. And um, we both just devoured it pretty much right away. Like you started reading it in the car, like when we left, basically. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and we put out that episode. Anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, we talked to Daniel and Plez and um, that was such a fun one. They tell us some good historical facts about the place. And we actually recorded in the same room that all of these musicians that I'm about to talk about got their start. Yeah. And that was back in episode 88 when we were at Sun Studios. So for anyone who wants to go back and check that out. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm feeling like a businesswoman sitting here right now with my fancy chair and my fancy microphone. And Barbara Barnes-Sims, the woman who wrote this book, is also like a really cool working woman. Yeah, she is. So this book was written by one of Sam Phillips' employees named Barbara, and it's about her time at Sun Records. She reflects on this time at Sun as a unique education, and she was a witness to the Sun Studios phenomenon arriving on the scene just after Elvis had moved to RCA and then on to the Army, working at Sun from 1957 to 1960. Yeah, great time to be there. (laughs) She worked with Sam and Sun in sales. Ooh, say that five times fast. (laughs) Publicity and promotion. So she observed from a woman's perspective on how the music industry worked during this time. She was one of seven employees and four of those employees happened to be women. Because what people may or may not know is that Sam Phillips hired women. Mm -hmm. They basically ran Sun. Well, didn't run it, but they had a really important role in in, uh, many of the the happenings, the goings-on. Yeah, he really trusted in women. Mm-hmm. The artists would uh, that she would come to know and work with include Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins. Those are some of the big names. And then many, many names that um, I had never heard of before and learned a little bit about. Amazing. Barbara grew up in a small town in the Mid-South and went to Memphis, like many people did, looking for work. She had a college degree in radio, TV, and journalism, and in 1956 applied for a reporting job at the United Press. There, she worked for a man named Leo and settled into a job in the sales promotion department at WMCT Television, and it was actually Leo who recommended her to Sam Phillips. Cool. Yeah. So it's kind of like a recommendation, a word of mouth kind of thing. That's how I've gotten all my jobs, if I'm honest. (laughs) Cool. Word of mouth. (laughs) She'd been making money from her writing already for quite some time, beginning at the Daily Corinthian in her hometown of Corinth, Mississippi. And this is when she was in high school. She worked at the University of Alabama News Bureau and the educational TV station when she was just out of college. So she had written commercials for coffee, but never anything about music until her time at Sun Records. Hmm. After agreeing to meet Sam Phillips and having him cancel many times at the last minute, he eventually showed up at her house one night to chat. And it's funny because this first meeting was while her water heater had just broken. So they got to chatting as they took turns emptying out the water out of the pan under the tank. (laughs) So like, I guess he was good vibes, you know, like he didn't judge her. He didn't look at her. He just kind of like helped her and they took turns and they chatted. That's good. He didn't ask for a resume and cover letter, and she felt like she already knew him and that he knew her. And about her new job, he said, Barbara, you're going to be doing so many things. From one day to the next, you will be surprised at just what you will be doing. Talking to these distributors and disc jockeys, writing about these artists, hyping Billboard and Cashbox, every day there's going to be something different. You're going to love it. Don't get me wrong. I'm devoted to radio, but it's nothing like this record business. Hmm. And he was right, of course. Of course. Nothing like that record business. Uh. 
So she began by writing liner notes for Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. She had, so um, Sam had her listen to music and she was pretty much off to the races. She first listens to Carl Perkins and the copy came pretty easily to her. She responded well to his music and wrote up the lighter notes, adding some family background as well as what the listener would expect from the album. She mentioned certain songs she liked, like Matchbox, and left out some of the songs she liked the least. (laughs) Then it was on to Johnny Cash, which didn't come as easily to her. She says, Cash's music struck me as complex, primitive in a way, yet too penetrating to peg as just another country act. Besides, there were no fiddles. (laughs) And as she kept listening, she liked it more and more. And I thought Barbara was really cool. Like there was one part of the book where she'd like, you know, to congratulate herself on a job well done, talks about just like cracking open a cold bottle of Budweiser. <laughs> it's like she's a cool, like she's a cool person and a like really ambitious and amazing woman in the 1950s, like mid 1950s. Yeah, she's one of us. Have you ever heard uh, much Carl Perkins? Uh, not really, no. I hadn't either. So this episode really gave me an opportunity to listen to some of Carl Perkins' music and some earlier Johnny Cash stuff. And I thought we'd play a song called Matchbox by Carl Perkins. Great idea. Well, I'm sitting here wondering So when she was finished writing up these liner notes, she couldn't wait to drop off the fresh copy to Sam at Sun. She went to Sun Studios and he wasn't in. Hmm. However, she was to meet some other important players who were a part of the Sun Studio family at the time. Sam's secretary was named Sally Wilborn, a fresh and freckled young woman. Another young woman was sitting at a desk, Sun's receptionist, Regina Reese. There was also a man named Judd who happened to be Sam's brother. He was over six feet tall, had a deep Alabama accent, and a smooth manner. Sounds like a player. (laughs) (laughs) Sun offices and studio were located three blocks west of Beale. We went to Beale, right? Yeah, we did. But we were like, I don't even think we enjoyed it. Not because Beale is not an enjoyable experience. It was just because we were on tender hooks waiting for that text to confirm if we were actually going to be recording at Sun that night. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But so I think we, maybe- we did get to roam around a little bit. And I remember um, some locals uh, being real friendly with you. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> Yeah, we had like we had fun, but yeah, we were waiting uh, to find out if we get to go to Sun Studio, and thankfully we did. So yeah, we didn't spend yeah. much time there. Yeah, at seven oh six Union Avenue or Automobile Row was where Sun was located, an area where used and new car dealers and auto parts stores lined the streets. Sun's office was small and always seemed crowded. In fact, Barbara remarks one of her first days seeing Sally at her desk and surrounding her were a crush of young men sitting on the love seat or standing near the studio door. (laughs) Heaven. Yeah. (laughs) A blue neon sign in the window read Memphis Recording Services. Cool. And Lynx, do you know what people called Sun Studios? No. What do they call it? A hole in the wall completely surrounded by Cadillacs. Nice. Yeah, it is pretty like out of the way. It is um it's not what you expect like when you you build it something up in your head, you know, you imagine it to be this like crazy place and it is really small and you kind of have to know it's there to to go there it seems, like that area. Yeah. 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 
And yeah, a lot of the men and the musicians who arrived at Sun, they were all driving Cadillacs at that time. <laughs> of course. Sam Phillips mostly got his work done at the cafe down the road since somebody always wanted something from him there. So if he was there, you know, you can imagine the amount of, pe- the amount of people that wanted to talk to him, wanted him to hear their music. So I don't think it was too easy for him to really hold business there. So they went down to the little cafe. Mm. Barbara got to know Sam well during this time. Not only did he have this recording company, but he had a wife and two sons, a ranch house with a pool, a Cadillac, and a radio station. And she says, maybe more for all I knew. (laughs) In Florence, Alabama, Nashville, Sam had originally been an announcer before he took the chance on opening up his own recording studio. So I think that was a good move for him. Absolutely. Apparently, he had wanted to be a preacher. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So Barbara says, Sam got really wound up telling me how he felt and what he thought in getting his studio going. The wealth of talent from the Mississippi and Arkansas deltas to be heard on Beale Street, the electronic advances in recording, the expanding market for recordings, and other favorable conditions at the time. Hmm. Yeah. So this company, Christened Sun Records. Yes. And yeah, so she just missed Elvis. But what had happened that I didn't know was that, well, I guess I didn't know the details of it or like why Sam would have wanted to sell Elvis's contract for $40,000. But he told Barbara that it gave him the capital to... Uh, really get into business. It made him able to invest in other artists like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and put Judd on the road with them. That makes sense. And that's that's smart, you know, using that to help other people. You know, I like that. Yeah. You can't bank on just like one artist forever, I don't think. And with his involvement with the Colonel later on, like who knows what Yes. What repercussions that would have had for Sam anyways. So exactly. maybe that he got away from Elvis before the colonel got to him. Yep. Yep. So Barbara noticed that Sam had, yeah, interest in the religious matters and those early ambitions to be a minister. And she wrote about Sam saying him to be an honest, straightforward, and even tempered and congenial. He called himself the simplest man you've ever met, but to her, he seemed to have a complicated and calculating mind. Hmm. I think overall he was known as a really great guy, but I think kind of working with him for all the years, these years and stuff, sometimes he could kind of like go off and blow up and take things personally. But she, she talked about him in a really favorable light. That's good. Barbara would sometimes accompany the businessmen to their meetings at the cafe, and even if she didn't say much at first, she was learning the business almost like a fly on the wall, being privy to conversations that not many women probably had back then. Mm -hmm. These were the days where, um, in some places, women couldn't smoke in public. That's crazy. Yeah, there was a woman that had come in from out of town, maybe one of the musician's wives, and she'd asked Barbara, like, is it okay that we smoke in public? Wow. Yeah. So she picked up some new words from these guys, you know, some colorful language. (laughs) And she learned that sometimes in the music business, not everybody plays by the rules. And so when she was trying to understand this, she said to Sam, like, oh, you mean like, I'll screw you first? So she said that to Sam. (laughs) And he was kind of impressed by her ability to keep up, roll with it. And um, around this time, he told Barbara that he felt like she really knew him at a time when not many people did and he didn't confide in many people. Hmm. Yeah. They had a connection. They did. At this time, women worked mostly in clerical positions. Barbara had been tired of being a copywriter and once had a professor tell her that there's money in sales and this intrigued her, kind of piqued her interest interest which i think is cool that a woman at this time was tenacious enough to go after it and although she did want to get married and uh have children barbara was like important to her to set herself up yeah independent woman what a boss 
Another notable project that Barbara worked on was promotion for Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> that would have been fun. <laughs> or uh, but, difficult. I don't know. Well, <laughs> you know what? It, it was that. It was that. Yeah, it was fun, difficult. Crazy. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. Barbara wasn't yet full-time at Sun, but Judd and Sam were trying to convince her to leave her other job to join them and work on this Jerry Lee Lewis campaign full-time. So just to begin with, with Jerry Lee, Sun was getting a lot of fan mail for him since there was a huge reaction from a whole lot of shaking going on. So they wanted her to start answering these letters. And I liked how she responded responded to it she agreed but the first thing that she did was ask for stationery with a picture of jerry lee on it and she got it so smart she was comfortable like saying i think that this is going to be good i want this i'll do it if and they were like okay that's what you want that's what you want in an employee that's that's the way to move forward too right so i hadn't ever heard too much Jerry Lee Lewis because his reputation, how do you say this, never preceded him or like he just could never overcome the reputation of what we're going to talk about in a little bit. But for educational purposes, would you like to listen to a whole lot of shaking going on? Let's do it. All right. It is a pretty great song, though. (laughs) Around this time, she got a tour of the actual recording space, the curves and the ceiling with the baffles to make sound waves bounce. She said she noticed a trash can overflowing with beer cans and green wine bottles. (laughs) I guess not much has changed. (laughs) A folding metal chair held a tray full of cigarette butts. Several microphones were scattered around. There was a small upright piano toward the back and, of course, the control room. So she was able to go up into the control room. And I think something that was probably one of the most special things about our trip to Sun is that when we had the tour with everybody, the one that you pay for, you get to go in and you get to see the studio where all of these musicians recorded, but the control room is off limits. Yeah. But, 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 but we got to see the control room. We did. And it was great. It was exactly as I would have pictured it to be. Yeah. So she went up and it reminded her of being in a radio station with the reel-to-reel tape decks and soundboard. And honestly, it sounds like not much has changed (laughs) the way she was describing it. It was like, that's pretty much what I saw. Yep. From there, a door opened and she had a small office. It was part of her acceptance to the position to have a little space to herself. And this was it. Barbara was learning by experience, not knowing what to expect, and trying her best to keep up with the pace of this very fast business. Hmm. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. 
And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I thought this was interesting about the fan mail. She actually, and it makes sense, she imitated Jerry Lee Lewis's thin script handwriting. Yeah, she wanted and people then, to feel like it was him writing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But the signature, I'm pretty sure, was just like a stamp with his actual signature. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes she'd answer them at home or sometimes at the studio. And in order to get into her office, sometimes she'd have to wait in the reception area at the front until the red recording light was off so she can walk through the recording session to her office. <laughs> so she was really impressed by how Big Sun was becoming in the entertainment industry. Yeah. Oh, what a cool place to work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> As Barbara settled in, she did some writing for Carl Perkins, and Sam bought her a new Olivetti electric typewriter. So Sam sounded pretty generous with that kind of stuff. Cool. She felt as though she had arrived and that she really was part of the record business now. One thing she didn't quite love, though, was the untidiness of the studio. Um, like, she really thought that Sun should have had more pride in their appearance. Hmm. I think Sam says something about like a cleaning company going in every so often, but obviously it wasn't enough. Yeah. And it was kind of like a boys club, even with some of the women there. So I can picture it getting pretty sloppy. Totally. Another thing that people's business life and private life seemed to be intertwined there. So she'd always kept those two, her business life, her private life, separate. She valued her freedom and her private life, but it was hard to not get sucked into Sam's charisma, allowing Sun Studios to control your life all the time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of business becoming personal, um, early on, Barbara did notice something happening between Sam and the secretary, Sally. Ooh. Yeah, it seems like it wasn't quite out in the open, and it wasn't exactly a secret either. I see. One of mm -hmm. those. Yeah. One of those. I've been there. <laughs> uh, making business personal? A little work crush? <laughs> Maybe once or twice. <laughs> I think back when I worked at a music venue in Halifax, I worked at the Seahorse, and um, I was dating a guy and he worked there too, but I can't remember if we dated before or after. Man, things are a blur sometimes. Oh, for sure. I also kissed the sound guy there too. Ooh. Wow. Lucky him. You know. <laughs> so. Barbara was still freelancing and liked the extra income this allowed her, but deciding to move full-time to Sun, she was asked about her preferred salary. She decided on, and Sam agreed to $90 a week, which was more than she was making previously. And get this, at the time, the average woman was making $50 a week. Damn. Yeah. That's amazing. Good for her. 
Yeah. She felt like she had real work to do and stimulating coworkers. Like she genuinely liked it, which is how many people can say that about their job? I used to be able to say that. You used to be able to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can we'll say it now. We love this job. Oh, we, we definitely love this job. I have a stimulating coworker. Yes. We have fun too. <laughs> As I mentioned before, Barbara had never worked in music or ha- ever had plans to work in music until this time. She decided to keep a backup plan in mind, thinking about her long-range future and perhaps eventually someday something more with more stability. Hmm. Barbara enjoyed school and read that there would be a rise in college admissions soon and that colleges would be hiring many more professors. She liked the routine of set hours and summers off and did hope to be married with children one day. So she began working on her master's in English on the weekends and evenings. She's just kick ass. I know. Hard Then she'd be ready for those baby boomers. Yep. Yep. She'd hoped to work for Sun for several years, depending on how her career progressed there and with Sam and what developed in her life. And honestly, I think having that kind of a backup thing was a smart move. For sure. Even though Sun had many women working there, this was an exception in the music industry, of course. Barbara says that all the DJs were male and mostly all of them were white. At Sun, people were constantly dropping by, a stream of hopeful people wanting to be, as the name of the book suggests, the next Elvis. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, she started traveling quite a bit later and she didn't like that as much because she didn't like being the only woman uh in a group with these men because she found them quite vulgar understandable yeah um, yeah so not always easy being the only woman yeah i mean almost never easy but yeah right so speaking of elvis barbara didn't or hadn't seen him drop by the studios just yet So Barbara, or BB as they lovingly called her at the studio, does mention one incident at the studio itself where the men had become a problem. So imagine, you know, it's a building full of men drinking, smoking, recording, and normally it was fine, but there was an incident where one of the female employees, Kay, came into Barbara's office crying, saying that one of the men had been inappropriate with her, and so Barbara took no shit. She opened the door to the studio, and she kicked everyone out. And they all listened to her. They left. So this is just one example of how Barbara stood up for others and learned how to be strong and stand up for herself. I love it. I love this woman. I know. She was spending a lot of time with Judd, speaking to him almost daily and learning the ins and outs of the kind of corrupt, sounds like, record business. Mm -hmm. From single soul to bootlegs to illegal operations, Barbara was getting a schooling in sales. Perfect. I loved reading about the office routines, like how everyone went and had coffee together in the morning at the cafe, and some of them even ate breakfast there every single day. And like to think that having a job that you love with people you enjoy, Uh, you know, and you don't have to like rush it. Like they were able to have breakfast together and it wasn't just like, get to work, start your job. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Barbara didn't have a car yet. She was saving up to buy one. So for now, she would take the Trailways bus home to visit her mom in Mississippi, or if she had to run errands for the studio, she'd take the bus. She uh, when, One time when she went home, she even visited some of her friends at WCMA Radio to tell them the good news about her job. Hmm. She had done some unpaid training there in high school. Then in college, she reported local news for them. One of her friends there told her a story about something famous that Judd had done for Elvis. And you can tell me, I'm going to read it for you, and you can tell me if you had ever heard of this. Ready? I'm ready. Give it to me. So, apparently Judd Phillips started a riot at one of Elvis's first concerts outside of the South while he was managing Elvis. It was either Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. I forget which, he said. But in Pennsylvania, Elvis was booked for three shows, and at the first one, 
300 fans showed up in a 10,000-seat building. For the second show, Judd took 2,000 tickets and gave them, along with $2, to every young girl he found on the street. He promised that there would be a prize for the one who could steal the most of Elvis's clothes after the concert. Well, you should have seen the mob. Elvis's clothes were shredded. Word got around, and the third show sold out. The, so- the Associated Press picked up the story, and that was Elvis's first national publicity. Wow. How clever. (laughs) And she said that she definitely could believe that he had done that based on like who she knew Judd to be and everything. I, I can picture it happening, too. And I think that's so smart. He was on the ball. Yeah. Poor Elvis. No, not poor Elvis, but yeah, I'm sure he didn't mind that being given a ticket and two dollars to see Elvis, Ugh. and then being told, "Hey, try to rip off his clothes." <laughs> Be like, no problem, I got you. All right, so moving on from Elvis, we'll come back to him later. Enter Roy Orbison. Ah, oh, I love Roy. So he played shows in the Mid-South with Sun's other artists, and he occasionally showed up at the studio. He had success with his song, Ooby Doobie, and was impatient for another hit. Barbara said he'd come into her office to talk about his career aspirations. He seemed really focused on his success and wanted Sam to be doing more for his musical career. One day, when Roy seemed like he was in an especially good mood, Barbara asked him for a favor. She needed a lift to stop by the printers, and the bus would have taken her all morning. So he gave her a ride in his sleek Cadillac and even politely opened the door for her. Hmm. He called it his Ooby Dooby car because he made $50,000 with that one song. Wow. Damn. You, do you want to listen to the song that made Roy Orbison $50,000 and got him an Ooby Dooby Cadillac? Absolutely. Ooby Dooby. Okay, here it is. Ooby Dooby. Hey, baby, jump over here when you do the ooby-dooby. I just gotta be near ooby-dooby, ooby-dooby. Roy he's so sweet um for anyone who doesn't know um there's a new artist called Orville Peck who's amazing and he's like the modern Roy Orbison so if you love him check out Orville Peck because oh my goodness actually you had mentioned how much you like Orville Peck and then TJ started playing him a lot and then I was like shit this is good it's so good it is so good and he's amazing live Canadian yes he is Canadian yeah yeah. All right. So Barbara had some pretty interesting things to say about Roy, like how he wanted to be a star like Elvis, but he didn't love R&B that came out of the music of Elvis, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee. She said he was having a bit of an identity crisis, like he had the pompadour the same as Elvis, but he was kind of, you know, a bit for lack of a nicer word, on the chubby side. And she just said maybe he hadn't drunk enough of the Mississippi water growing up. Mm-hmm. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Oh, Roy. In 1958, Barbara met Jerry Lee Lewis in the flesh. Whereas Roy Orbison had a bit of a gloomy air around him, Jerry Lee had a swagger. She was surprised at his height since seeing him sitting at a piano in photos made him appear shorter than he actually was. She said that he had barely entered through the door before he ran a comb through his peroxide golden locks. <laughs> and she said he seemed more immature than he seemed young. Interesting. But, yeah. It is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but when she saw him the next day, he was in full character. He was singing and playing the piano. Not a kid, but a man. A roiling, explosive package of energy and sound. Yeah. That might mean I might have made a mistake that might say rolling, but is roiling a word? Yep. Oh, well, maybe he was roiling then. He probably was. (laughs) 
Another part of Barbara's job was to entertain people, mostly men who came into town on business. This sounds creepy, but it wasn't. Um, Like Sam really respected Barbara. So one Saturday, when she didn't normally work Saturdays, she entertained Jerry Schriffen, the Roulette Records promotion man. Barbara told Jerry Schiffen the story of how Jerry Lee first came to Sun in 1956. Sam was out of town, but Jerry Lee insisted that someone hear him. So Sally buzzed Jack Clement in the control room and told him that Jerry had told her that he played piano like Chet Atkins played guitar. Hmm. Nice. Jack heard him, liked it, and Bill Riley was there with his bass tuned up to accompany the audition. Jack rolled the tape. This week's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. If you haven't downloaded Best Fiends yet, what are you waiting for? Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game that anyone can play. Since I'm spending so much time at home, I'm glad that I have Best Fiends to play with all this downtime. I usually play between commercials or if I'm on a break from work, and I actually was just playing it while I was waiting for you today. I find it actually relaxes me, and I'm playing so much that my boyfriend will come into the room and ask me if I'm fiending. (laughs) I've taken it to the next level and moved from playing it on my phone to my iPad so I can see the bright colors and design even bigger now. Wow. Not only do they up the challenges, but they update the game monthly with new levels and fun events, so there's always something exciting going on. I just passed level 120. Wow. Yeah, I was waiting for for that. (laughs) I love how they up the challenge while still keeping it fun. I really have become quite obsessed with it. Is your dad still playing? Oh, he definitely is. And for anyone who's worried about surpassing their monthly data, Best Fiends does not require the internet to play. So keep on leveling up. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So yeah, uh, Barbara brought Jerry into the control room at Sun and they listened to Jerry Lee on in the studio. So although Barbara wished Sun would have taken more pride in the studio's appearance, she had to admit that it sounded good. Yeah, it did. And Jerry thought so, too. He was impressed with that famous sun sound. Funny little side note, though. Jerry Lee Lewis actually told Sam Phillips that he thought Sam had some bad women working for him, like Barbara. Because when he was recording, he said he saw Barbara shaking her head the whole time. Wow. Sam told Jerry to hold on and defended Barbara, saying that she was just a big fan and she couldn't believe that any one person could have so much talent. (laughs) And Jerry Lee seemed satisfied with this. Of course. Just stroke that ego a little bit and all is well. Yeah. So Jerry Lee's Great Balls of Fire had been riding high in the charts in February of 1958, and then something took its place. Johnny Cash's Ballet of ballad of a teenage queen and that had actually been composed by the a&r man that i previously mentioned jack clement oh nice yeah so things really started getting exciting for barbara because what more could you want from working in a music business beside hanging around with musicians all day and listening to great music yep a bit of travel and so barbara was sent to new york for the first time that's she was pumped of course she like bought a whole new like outfit a jacket a hat gloves amazing oh yeah she was ready jed spent most of his time traveling there and then anywhere else and sure enough barbara was eventually invited to join she had such little experience traveling that she didn't know that she wasn't allowed to smoke on the flight (laughs) but she was super excited to be there although she wasn't used to the strange sounds of the city and had a really hard time sleeping wow The first time that she met Carl Perkins, she didn't know it was him. She describes him as a man with curly hair, a receding hairline, and an air of profound dejection. He was so thin as to look malnourished. A more experienced person would have known it was a look connected with alcoholism, but I didn't recognize that. 
Something about his sadness and humility reminded me of those stray dogs that would come around our farmhouse looking for scraps. Yeah. So he said a brief hi to her, but her attitude towards the musicians were, well, if they don't speak to me, then I won't initiate conversation. I get that. Barbara became close friends with Jack Clement, and one of her favorite things to do was spend time with him in the studio when he would sing and play the guitar just for her. Ah, dream. (laughs) She said the song she liked best was the best guitar picker in Shelby County, (laughs) which I could not find on YouTube. Interesting. (laughs) Barbara had been writing about Johnny Cash for a year, but she had yet to meet him. It was April 1958 when he finally arrived in his 56 Lincoln. She watched as Johnny recorded songs in the studio, among them some that Jack had written for him. One thing I wanted to mention is when Johnny mentioned that the song Come In Stranger had been written for his wife Vivian, something she always said when she greeted him when he got home. Hmm. Yeah. So she ended up in the same booth as Johnny one day when all the staff went out to lunch. Amazing. So she had a little chat with Johnny Cash. Oh, I love him so much. I've been listening to a lot of Johnny Cash lately, actually, in isolation. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. Yeah. He's great. Let's see. Yeah. Have you heard the song Come In Stranger? I don't think so. Well, let's play it right now. Come In Stranger by Johnny Cash. Come in, stranger, it's good to have you home I hurried through cause I knew it was you When I saw your dog wagging his tail Honey, why didn't you let me know by mail You've been gone so long, she said Come in, stranger, I know you're weary from all the miles Just sit right there in your easy chair And tell me all about the places you've been how long it'll be before you leave again I hope it's a long, long while She said, come in, stranger Everything around home is fine All right, so Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash had both been offered contracts by Columbia when their son obligations were over. For John, he was guaranteed $50,000 royalty in the first year and he had the chance to do the gospel album he always wanted to do. They also stressed that they would give him greater possibilities for movies and TV. Hmm. So, of course, he took it. And Sam Phillips took Johnny Cash's leaving personally. Uh, That that hurt him. By the way, $50,000 in 1958, I looked it up, is almost half of a million dollars today. That is insanity. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. At this time, Barbara's job had evolved from much more than just writing fan mail. She's like into it now. So this is what she says. My job at Sun had many facets, but my chief function was to be a salesperson. My task was to get our records noticed and played in as many ways as I could devise using my telephone and typewriter. A new means of publicity was launched in May 1958 with the debut of Sunliners, a one-page monthly news sheet that contained information about our current releases. Sam, as always, had given me a free hand with content, saying... I could include whatever I chose to feature, including mention of other labels' records. I laid out several boxes, which one devoted to a DJ spotlight, a couple mentioning new records, Cash and Lewis, for the first issue, and a column of short news notes about our people, the industry at large, and whatever news I could find about DJs, stations, and others in our orbit. I even mentioned Roy Orbison's tune Claudette coming out on Cadence. Wow. That's so cool. And like, it makes sense because... It's like a new platform. It's something new that they're doing. They're sort of creating it along the way. And I love that she had the freedom to be able to do that. Yeah. That year, though, had brought a momentous event that had enormous repercussions for Sam Phillips, Sun Records, and all of the people who were associated with the company. Can you guess what or rather who it was? What year was this again? 1958. I don't know. Tell me. Tell me. 
Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, okay. Had married his 13-year-old That's cousin. Right. Yeah. Uh, a story. <laughs> yeah, here we go again. <laughs> a story that was broken in the British press and um, brought the world of fun and music at Sun Studios to a halt. Yeah. How do you explain that one? Well, Sun never had a major star after this fiasco, according to Barbara. Damn. When she got to work at 8.30 a.m., the phones were already ringing. Helen Bolstad, a popular freelance music writer, had gotten the news from London. And she often wrote about Sun artists, and they were supposedly all friends all around. But of course, like, she had to break this. Mm -hmm. Sam wanted to buy space in Billboard to present Jerry in a better light, but Jerry wasn't really making things better for himself. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like Jerry would go on TV shows or he would say things like on record, like she may be young, but she's whole lot of woman. Oh, fuck. No, just yeah. no, just no. Yeah. Ugh. So he had told the reporter that he was in love with Myra and it was against his religious beliefs to have sex outside of marriage. Ugh. But like, never mind, he already had two wives. Yeah, he's just, uh, he's something else. Yeah. He still is something else. He's like always been. He was a bigamist. Yep. An issue that eventually had Sam in the Memphis courts in Jerry Lee's behalf. Oh, man. Yeah. Like while Jerry was making his supposed to be triumphal tour of England. Uh... Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't just the age. It was like the incest angle. Um, There's just so many layers of grossness here. It's- yeah, so Myra's father, J.W. Brown, was not only Jerry's bass player, he was also a cousin. <laughs> of course, they're all cousins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, Myra was, like, the babysitter of Jerry's no. children. It's just, like, no. awful. Uh. Yeah, so Jerry Lee was booed off stage. And his, yeah, his career... Can you say that it recovered? Uh, not no. not the way it should have. I mean, not not the way it would have if it weren't so messed up. Right. So Jerry Lee never seemed to acknowledge that there was anything weird about this marriage. And <laughs> he was even trying to tell people that, like, she was 14, lacking a couple months. I feel like and- he's like the Donald Trump of that time. Just, like, keep denying, keep <laughs> lying, keep acting like it's normal, and hopefully... You're, you pray people will believe you? Barbara says he knew he was a celebrity, but he didn't know he could be brought down by popular opinion. Mm. So he was banned on many radio stations and ignored by most. Dick Clark canceled future bookings and Jerry Lee's personal appearances became infrequent and poorly paid. Mm-hmm. So Audrey Williams makes an appearance in the book asking Sam, so she went to Sun, and she asked Sam if he knew anybody suitable to play her late husband, Hank Williams, in a movie. She came into Barbara's office and Barbara said, I just couldn't grasp that I was sitting three feet away from the woman who had inspired all those wonderful Hank Williams weepers. She wasn't old, in her mid-30s at the time, but her face showed many miles. Yeah, we know. We know all about that. That's right. So they never really heard any more about the Hank Williams movie after that. Mm. But one day in June, yeah. Barbara finally met Elvis. Oh, been waiting. She always thought he was going to like stop by at nighttime because that's kind of how he rolled. Yeah. But no, there he was just like during the day. And Sam made their acquaintance. Elvis shook her hand and said, glad to meet you, ma'am. So this is what she said about him, that they, you know, exchanged a couple more pleasantries and she would have liked to talk to him more. But, you know, she just like the other part of her brain was like, it's not polite to intrude. But she says, still, I fully took in what a beautiful sight to behold the real Elvis Presley was that day. He no longer fit the stereotype that had been attributed to him, a sneering hillbilly cat with a pompadour, purple jacket and teenager skin. Instead, I saw a fit and glowing specimen of manhood with a neat haircut and custom-tailored uniform that showed off his perfect physique. He looked squarely in the face in a sincere manner as he said he enjoyed meeting me, and I thought he had a lovely smile with some warmth and humility shining through. 
What a dish. Uh, was she called like a glorious specimen of manhood? That's like, that's perfect. A glowing specimen glowing. of manhood. Uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm sweating. <laughs> I actually am. <sighs> Where were we? <laughs> so Barbara got her license and it was time to purchase a vehicle. Sam did a test drive for her, like an on her vehicle and checked out that it was good deal. You know, it was like very brotherly, fatherly. And while Barbara was attending school, she said she liked most of her professors except for her American lit teacher who ignored all of the women in the class and would address the men as, you bright young men who are going to be the the professors of tomorrow. Gross. And like, of course, there were no women professors among Barbara's teachers at the time. Of course. But spoiler alert, she becomes one. Yeah, she does. Because she's awesome. So one of Barbara's jobs at Sun was to cultivate the trade journal personnel who were responsible for reviewing records. They discussed how music was selected for Billboard magazine. She learned that the staff would listen to recording and discuss what they did or didn't like about them. And some funny, weird stories that I thought were great um, was how it was actually like men in Barbara's life that were the ones getting cosmetic procedures because they were so concerned about their looks. So, like, for example, Jack Clement got a nose job because he thought Elvis's subtle nose job was so nice. <laughs> like, another weird piece of insider info is that apparently everyone who, rung around, who hung around at Sun who owned motorcycles were known for taking nude motorcycle rides when they were up to their shenanigans. Oh, my God. I can picture it. It's great. And then <laughs> here's a cute, funny story. One Christmas, they wanted Sam to give them money for a Christmas tree, but I guess he was in a mood. So he said to use the tree from last year, which was in the storage room. And by the way, it was a real tree. So it was brown and falling apart. So they did as he said, and they got out that brown tree (laughs) and they decorated the tree with paper clips, pink memos, cigarette butts, a broken 45, and any other trash from around the studio. (laughs) On top of the tree, instead of a star, they put an empty beer can. Wow. Apparently, Sam was disgusted when he saw it (laughs) and made them get rid of it immediately. But he still arrived the next day with gifts for everyone, and I think it was the following year he let them get a nice new tree. Well, after that one, I I get why. Yeah. So even though Barbara had tried to keep her work life and personal life separate, after a year of working at Sun or a couple of years, she felt like she had real friends there and she enjoyed going into work and hanging out with them. Regina, for example, she could always count on for companionship and gossip at lunch. And this comes as no surprise to anyone, but Barbara loved being among creative and endlessly amusing people. But she felt like the musicians were big children and Sun Record Company was their playpen. Mm-hmm. Everyone at Sun was a character, even the postman who resented their strange hours and amount of rejected packages that they would give back to him, stomping around the office and slamming the door as he left. <sighs> So Barbara was one year away from her uh, master's and considering joining a university faculty sooner rather than later. At this time, um, you know, things were starting to kind of change a lot at Sun and a host of cute teen heartthrobs were stopping by, such as Ricky Nelson, Fabian and Bobby Darren with what she called a type of watered down rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Barbara sometimes got yelled at by men in the music industry. She has a pretty interesting attitude about it. Because you're like, well, why was she getting yelled at? Yeah. This is what she says. At Sun, I got used to being braided for late shipments, refusals to take unreasonable return requests, lack of an album on a singer with a hot single, Sam's failure to return a phone call, and any any other number of problems. This was a part of my learning to stand out for myself because I knew Sam expected me to, not for me individually, but for his company. It was not a skill I had learned before since Southern ladies were supposed to be sweet and compliant. And also I was an only child, so I had missed out on fighting with siblings. Hmm. 
Yeah. She says, strange is it strange though it may seem, I was more grateful than offended by Milton and some guys like him. His manner meant he took me seriously in my job. I was important enough to be yelled at and negotiated with. I appreciated this aspect of the record business. Chivalry was nice in its place, but what went for respect in other jobs I'd had was actually condensation. And if only a man could talk business. So that's interesting. She could talk business. Yeah, she could. So wrapping up here, in 1959, sun sales were off. Singles nationwide had declined in sales, and it could have been due to top 40 programming and transistor radios, teenagers not needing their own discs. Musical tastes were changing, too, as the ones selling uh, were Broadway scores and classical pop. Mm -hmm. The first wave of rock and roll was almost over. Yeah. Elvis was in the army, Chuck Berry was in jail, and Jerry Lee had been banned from radio. She says, in essence, rock was going pop, and the top records were coming out of the East Coast, Hollywood, and Nashville. Previously, though, in 1956, Barbara said that it was actually the youngsters who made Sun so successful. The preteens and teens had more impact on the economy ever before with their allowances and part-time jobs. They liked cars, fast food, and above all, they liked to dance. Yeah, they did. Get and, it up for those teens. And it's true. These are the fans. These are the groupies. Like they, We are the ones that keep music alive. We're the ones showing up. We're paying for those albums, you know? Look, the stuff that the teens are putting on TikTok these days is way funnier than anything SNL is doing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So big shift at Sun especially when they moved to 639 Madison. It was internationally regarded as a state-of-the-art facility, and it was built to fill the growing needs of the Sun Records recording label that the older, smaller Sun Records studio was no longer able to handle. But it was no longer cramped, and Barbara felt it more lonely, and she missed the camaraderie, and she missed the songwriters, the people stopping by. She believed that in order to do her job effectively, she really had to be close to the music to understand it, and now she wasn't mm -hmm. it's like sam phillips had made all this money they said two million dollars without ever having a desk and that was kind of changing yep but there was a new school opening in alexandria louisiana and barbara was offered a position for the 1960 1961 school year she would have a step up in salary she'd get to read books for a living greater security and benefits and you know those kinds of things she didn't have at sun perfect she was worried about telling Sam, but eventually that summer she told him. He didn't even try to tell her to reconsider. He congratulated her and said, you can always have a job with me. Even if this record business doesn't pick up, I'll always have other places you can fit in. Aw, what a yeah. sweetheart. Yeah. So they had a rooftop going away party for her. She got sweet gifts and she had a few drinks and kissed everyone. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like something something Special that I would do. Goodbye. <laughs> oh. Barbara taught at that school for three years after she left Sun. Yep. She married a man named Robert Sims, and together they had a daughter. They moved to Baton Rouge, and she taught in the English department at Louisiana State University, retiring in 1996. Wow. Yeah, she friggin' worked. Wow. Yeah, she was a boss lady. She kicked butt. Oh, she's like won two major university-wide teaching awards, and there was a scholarship named in her honor. Oh, my God. She's edited several alumni publications and uh, published freelance feature articles and scholarly papers, and she became an independent technical and business writing consultant for the state of Louisiana. She's... Uh... Oh, and, and she gave lectures on rock and roll and literature at continuing education classes. My God, she she really did keep busy. Totally. So this is what she said. This is how we'll, we'll wrap up here at Sun. At Memphis State, I was taught that a drama requires a, a significant theme, along with enough conflict and tension to make an interesting story. At Sun, I had witnessed three years of pure drama play out before my eyes. It was a small studio, 706 Union Avenue, T Memphis, Tennessee, but such a big chunk of life. 
Hmm. Sherwood Anderson, one of my favorite writers, said that for him, writing was love in words. At Sun, making music was love in sound. That love has echoed in my heart and mind wherever I've gone all the days of my life. Uh, I love Barbara. My goodness. Yeah. She actually also said, and I'm like, okay, let's finish with this. But also, like... She just regards Sam so highly. She says that he gave me to myself. He was my final father figure who convinced me of my ability to meet the challenges of my life capably. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He does sound like a special guy. And uh, it's so important to have mentors like that in your life to help you. And uh, it's nice when you hear such positive things, especially about like men in power positions, you know, realizing women's worth in the business places and especially in that era too like good on him yeah so that's the story of the next elvis searching for stardom at sun records by barbara barnes sims so thanks so much for to barbara for like paving the way being such an amazing go-getting strong woman yeah what an inspiring story and thank you for telling it and bringing me back to sun studio that was so much fun and i'm gonna go look through our old photos now i think and reminisce i think you should and thanks to daniel and plez for uh the book gifting us this gifting us get us this book and just a wonderful experience and yeah yeah amazing all right. Well, All right. well, thanks. Thanks for listening, Links, And thanks, everybody else, for listening. I hope you enjoyed a first kind of uh, book back. Yes. I'm working on my next one, and that's going to come out in a few weeks. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how this quarantine – we haven't yet interviewed someone in quarantine. That's going to be interesting because we've always been together for interviews. But uh, we're going to test that out this week, and uh, we'll uh, – keep trying to give you guys the best episodes that we can yeah all right everybody thanks so much for listening take care we'll see you next time see you next time Hey, I'm Jillian Clare, the host of the podcast, Thanks for Coming In. I've accumulated some pretty crazy audition stories over the past 20 years, and so have my friends. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this. And then Disney calls and is like, we need you to come test for the Ant-Man movies. I didn't know if my scene was going to get cut or not. Ooh, I could play that. Tune in every Thursday to hear your favorite actors tell the funniest, saddest, and most cringeworthy audition stories. Sometimes even the one that got away. Thanks for Coming In is available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.